Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Myrna Perez Sheldon. She's an assistant professor of gender and American religion at Ohio University. She has a joint appointment in classics and world religions and in women's gender and sexuality studies. She talks with us about the relationship between religion and science and its impact on politics and public policy. Dr. Sheldon, explain what this grant is all about and why it's important to study this particular area. So the grant is called Critical Approaches to Science and Religion. And we called it that because we want people who we get involved with the grant to take a moment and think about something different when they hear the phrase science and religion. So a lot of times if you say, I study science and religion, or I'm interested in science and religion, or I care about the relationship between science and religion, you probably mean that you want to ask questions like, does God exist? What's the nature of the universe? Is it intellectually respectable to be a religious person? Something like that. And even though we think, uh, myself and the other people involved with the grant, even though we think these are important questions, what we sort of want to do is get people to see that there are other kinds of questions you might ask if you were thinking about science and religion. So, for instance, you might ask something like, should religious communities be able to make their own sex education policies? Or um, something that's come up in the news a lot, uh, should indigenous communities get to decide who belongs to them? Or do genetic scientists get to make that decision? So it's because I am very interested in changing the kinds of questions we focus on when we study science and religion that I wanted to put together a grant that would give an opportunity for scholars to meet together and think about what it looks like to shift the questions we ask. And then also to take time then to think about what it looks like to change the way we teach science and religion or the way that we talk about science and religion in public places. These also have ramifications in the arena of public policy, correct? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that I think about a lot for science and religion is, again, when we think about it, we usually think about people sort of sitting in a room, having important conversations, debating. 
But actually, when you sort of look around the world, science and religion pop up all the time when we're making policy decisions. So if you're making a decision whether or not to regulate business because you have concerns about climate change, or you're deciding whether or not um, public companies have to pay for contraception for their employees. Um, So one of the examples I talk about a lot um, is the Hobby Lobby case, where the owners of Hobby Lobby, the Green family, have a religious belief that means that they didn't want to pay for certain kinds of contraception, contraceptive devices that are mandated under the Affordable Care Act. So if we start to think about science and religion as about being those sorts of things, then we realize that it's not enough just to study the kind of big abstract questions. We need another way of studying science and religion. We need another way of thinking about what does science mean? What does religion mean? What's the relationship between these? And I tend to think that when we start to see that the relationship between science and religion is about making public policy and is often about public policy for um, different communities, especially marginalized communities, then we have to start thinking about things like race and gender and sexuality and class when we think about science and religion. Let's break this down a little bit. Uh, I think the debate normally, as you well put it, is you have to either be all science or all religion. And the the two have a real uneasy relationship with each other. Is that common view incorrect? That's a great question. And I think that the way that I would answer it is we have to ask why we're interested in the answer to that question. So when we ask the question, the relationship between science and religion, do they get along? Is one right? Is one better than the other? In a sense, we're really trying to ask, where does the authority for the decisions we make in our life come from? Where do we get our values from? Sort of who gets to decide um, what's ethical, what's moral? And what I would say is that when we start to recognize that when we use the word science, we're often associating it with groups of people or things that people do that have um, certain identities attached to them. So for instance, a lot of times when you say the word scientist, or if you imagine a scientist, they'll do these studies with children, they usually draw a person who looks like a man or looks like a white man. You know, when if you think about the person of a scientist, you often probably think, in a lab coat. Yeah, probably <laughs> in a lab coat, and a lot of times with crazy hair, because they're often thinking of somebody like Einstein, right? Now, if you if you say a religious person in the United States, you might think about a Christian person, but you also might think about a Muslim person. And if you drew a religious person, you might think about somebody who had a certain color to their skin, maybe wore certain clothing. And so we start to see that these aren't just abstract categories. They're categories that we associate with certain kinds of people and certain types of people. So, for instance, if you're asking, you know, is it better to be scientific or is it better to be religious? Or can these two things get along? You're also asking the question, what's that relationship between that white scientist in a lab coat and maybe that Muslim person who is maybe a woman and wearing a veil? You know, which one of them is more right about the world or is one of them a a better kind of person? So I guess another way of putting it is when you ask, is can science and religion get along? You're also asking the question, can different kinds of people get along? 
that's difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult. It makes the question more difficult. It, yeah. it, it it makes it uh, much more difficult for the average listener out there on this topic. They may hearken back to the debate over evolution. Yeah, and and creationism as the ultimate debate between science and 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 religion. Obviously, your studies go way beyond that. Uh, but is that still a construct that we're locked in as a society? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really good one to start with. So one of the things I think about a lot when I talk about science and religion is I try to think about what are the images or topics that come to people's mind when you say science and religion. So creationism is a really big one. Sometimes people will also think about something like climate change now, but they'll think about things like the Big Bang Theory or other things in physics, I guess I would say. And on the one hand, part of the point of this grant is just to say there's lots of other kinds of things we could talk about when we're talking about science and religion. So maybe we should think about medicine or, um, uh, I don't know, paleontology or just lots of other sciences. But the other thing that we might be wanting to do is just to change the way we study something like creationism. So creationism is actually something that I study a lot in, in, in the work that I do as a historian. And instead of, for instance, looking at creationism in the United States as only being about um, debates between scientists and, let's say, conservative religious communities, or only about what we teach in public classrooms— one of the things that I've looked at, for instance, is how creationists criticize science in some similar ways and at some similar times in the ways that feminists criticize science. And you can actually see ways that feminists want to sort of challenge the authority of evolutionary science, to challenge the authority of evolution to determine the difference between sexes or the role, the roles that men and women might take in society. So, for instance, in the 1970s and 1980s in the United States, you have creationists criticizing evolution, but you also have feminists criticizing evolution. And so when you recognize something like that, you realize that it's not just a debate about ideas. It's not just how old is the earth or how do you measure geologic, you know, geologic phenomenon or um, you know, how do we date rocks or something like that? It's also a question about who gets to decide what it means to be a human. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a moral person? And so conservative religious groups are challenging science because they want a space to create their own values and create their own meaning. But feminists are also doing that. So I guess a, a way of answering your question is, our grant is asking people to see that there's a lot more to the science and religion or the study of science and religion than creationism. But it also might be doing something like, let's study creationism differently. The I, As you're talking and I'm listening to you, I, I'm thinking of the opposites of faith and proof. Hmm. And it seems that those are really opposed <laughs> to, yeah. to each other. Is there a place where they meet? Is there a nexus? Yeah, I think that's a, 
It's an important question. It's also an interesting question, right? So I'm guessing when you say faith and proof, you might be thinking that faith goes with religion and proof goes with science. Yes. That was the the scientists say, okay, something doesn't exist unless I can prove it and I can prove it repeatedly so that it's replicable. Faith is by lay definition a, a belief in something that's unknown or mm, perhaps mm-hmm. unprovable. Uh, to, and that's why I was asking. Yeah. So – I think on the one hand, um, one of the interesting things you could ask about that is um, there are ways to see that if you look at the kind of everyday things that scientists do, there's sort of maybe less less replicability and sort of less proof in it than you might imagine. Um, and if you look at the things that religious people do every day, there's maybe more proof in it than you might imagine. But that's maybe not the best way of answering that question. I think I think the way I'd want to answer your question is it's it's almost as if in the grant we not that we want to go beyond that question um, but we sort of want to say who are the people who get to ask that question right who has kind of the time to to sit down and kind of have that abstract debate you know what kind of places are they in is is that a is that a debate that you have in a university is it a debate that you have if you publish a set of books? And there are lots of people who maybe don't get to think about that, right? They're sort of going about their lives, kind of working. Most people. Most right. people don't get to think about that, right? And so we sort of want to say, you know, when we study science and religion, we don't just want to ask about faith and proof. We want to know how science and religion influence the work that people have to do every day, um, you know, where they get their health care from, um, you know, why they have to be in a certain kind of job. Um, why they might be, how they're impacted by environmental harm. Those are the kinds of questions we want to ask. So it's not to say there's something wrong with asking those abstract questions. It's just there's a lot more there's a lot more going on in people's lives than just the chance to talk about those abstract ideas. I know that you have a dual appointment, one in classics and world religions, the other in women's gender and sexuality studies. Uh, this clash my word clash between religion and science um, has come up in the law that mm-hmm. that I study uh, repeatedly in areas of reprodu- reproductive rights, whether mm-hmm. it's abortion or or com- contraception. Is that the a battlefield that you're l- looking at and examining, or do you wish to look beyond that? No, that's absolutely a, a, something that that I personally focus on and that lots of people who are involved with the grant would focus on. And maybe kind of a, a simple way of getting a handle on the kind of work we do in the grant is if you do an exercise where you ask the question, for instance, let's go back to Hobby Lobby, you know, is it right for Hobby Lobby to refuse to pay for IUDs and Plan B for their employees? If you ask an abstract question like, "Is sci- what is the relationship between science and religion, you don't really get at an answer to that policy problem, right? Understanding abstractly the relationship between science and religion doesn't help you decide in the real world, do companies get to have religious freedom? You know, who gets to decide um, what our reproductive values are? Do 
do women have a right to choose or do communities get to say what they when they believe life begins? So I started thinking about a different way to study science and religion actually when I was teaching because I would have my students you know, maybe read a thinker like Richard Dawkins or a kind of older thinker like Stephen Jay Gould. And we would do an exercise where Dawkins would say science and religion always conflict and Gould would say, well, actually, there's ways that they can be compatible. And then I'd ask my students, okay, here's this, this problem, this debate over reproductive politics, you know, either use Dawkins' point of view or use Gould's point of view in order to solve it. And the thing that they found is neither point of view helped them. Neither point of view enabled them to come to a policy decision. It just wasn't the right approach. They weren't asking the right kinds of questions. And so I started to realize this, this sort of Dawkins way or the school's way of talking about science and religion, it's too abstract. It's not recognizing that science and religion have to do with gender, that they have to do with sexuality, that they have to do with race. Um, and so then I wanted to find a different way of thinking and talking about science and religion. I'm sitting here again thinking as you're, you're, you're talking, you know, uh, in the reaction to the Hobby Lobby, if we could mm -hmm. use that as sort of a microcosm. Yeah. Uh, I'm not debating the science. I debate Hobby Lobby's right to, mm -hmm. to do what they're doing with uh, reproductive and contraceptive uh, services. If I assume that they have a right to do that and they're being true to their beliefs, it seems like though I have a point of view that's neither science nor religion where I can choose not to frequent Hobby Lobby mm -hmm. because I find their belief alien to public policy uh, or to my view of uh, reproductive rights and people's right to choose. Yeah, and I think that I think that's a really it's a really helpful point, right? Because when you say this is my reaction to Hobby Lobby, you're not really saying what you think about religion as a category or what you think about science as a category. Neither, right? Um, and in you know, and in that example, Hobby Lobby wasn't disputing the effectiveness of the contraceptive devices, or you know, they, it's not that they didn't believe that the contraceptive devices worked; they just disagreed with what they did. Um, and I think that, you know, if you delve into that decision, a lot of it rests on the question of can corpor do corporations have standing so that they can be protected by the free exercise clause of the First Amendment? And ultimately, the court decided that they did, which, again, is not really about, you know, whether you think that, you know, science is more correct or religion is more correct. It's, it's a totally different kind of question. So in, in a real sense, I mean, there are lots of scholars who look at these things, right? If you were a scholar of the law and reproductive law, these are the kinds of questions you would ask about Hobby Lobby or, or let's say reproductive politics in the United States. And in some sense, the grant is doing something very simple, which is to say, there are already scholars who look at these sorts of things. There's already people who teach about these sorts of things. We just want people who, who think about science and religion to recognize that the court case over Hobby Lobby is a court case that involves science and religion. We'll be back after this message. 
The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You're, uh, you mentioned sexuality, and, and uh, that's always a flashpoint, mm-hmm. and uh, a flashpoint within religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Methodist Church is having an ongoing year-long, years-long debate over how it should respond to the gay and lesbian and transgender community. Mm-hmm. Uh, those issues seem to, again, transcend your science category and religion category and come to this battleground in the middle somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's another good example. So one of the things that that I will talk about with my students, for instance, is um, the language that the LGBTQ community will sometimes use um, talking about being born the way that they are. So being born gay or um, being born trans. Um, and one of the things I'll talk about with my students is that this is a very powerful and important and kind of personally personally meaningful way of thinking about sexual identity, right? Like sort of came into the world, I was born this way. But one of the things I get my students to look at is that I see this as a kind of reaction to religious groups saying that these are choices, right? That you are choosing to be gay, you're choosing to be trans, you're choosing to be lesbian. And so you you see in the United States, um, especially kind of starting in the 1990s and early 2000s, that gay rights um, activism really uh, centered on this language of being born this way. Um, and it's almost a, it's a kind of scientific assertion, right? It's in our genes. There's an interest in saying we sort of genetically come into the world with this sexual identity. And what's interesting about that is that usually um, – biology has been used to oppress marginalized groups, right? To say that you are biologically determined or you're biologically born a certain way is actually limiting to certain groups. So one of the things you can think about in that situation is that because of the rhetoric from conservative religious communities, it sort of influenced gay rights activists sometimes to be drawn to this kind of biology language, right? Like, I'm born a certain way. And 
I don't want to necessarily denigrate that because I, or, you know, insult it because, it, again, it's it's been politically very effective. So um, saying that gay identity is, um, you know, something essential rather than a choice, for instance, was part of the Supreme Court decision over same-sex marriage. It's also personally meaningful to people. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are especially queer activists who say, well, what's, you know, what's wrong with choosing to be gay or what's wrong with choosing to be trans? Um, if it were a choice, why would that be a problem? And to sort of question, why are we relying on biology? Biology hasn't always been the friend of marginalized groups. So there again, it's not really a question of is science right or is religion right? It's both of these categories, these institutions are sort of involved in debates over essentially the morality of non-normative sexuality. And again, as you say, it's somehow sort of in the middle. It's 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 in the middle of these debates. It's not really separating the two. But, but we seem to have flashpoints along, along the way. And, and one of those flashpoints f- for, for me is the whole uh, public policy debate over conversion therapy, mm-hmm. uh, th- which seems to be a debate sometimes characterized between science and religion. Yeah, absolutely. So, in fact, I just heard on NPR this morning that um, West Virginia is considering a bill to outlaw conversion therapy for minors. And again, on the one hand, you have, you know, the kind of stated public health assertion that conversion therapy is damaging to the mental health of youth that encourages substance abuse, it encourages higher rates of suicide. And then you have religious communities that want to assert, you know, we have our beliefs in what a appropriate lifestyle is, we have beliefs about what is sinful and what is moral. And so you have this conflict between essentially what is religious freedom or understood to be religious freedom, you know, the freedom of a community to determine what they understand their religious beliefs to be, and then this kind of accepted public health policy. I mean, I think it's not surprising to me that you're identifying these questions of reproduction or sexuality, because a lot of times I think we see in the United States these conflicts come from sort of public health spaces um, and then kind of religious communities wanting to push against public health. So one of the things that I've looked at a lot, for instance, is uh, religious communities, not just conservative Protestant communities, but also um, immigrant and refugee communities, for instance, that come from Muslim-majority countries that want to opt their children out of public sex education. So on the one hand, you have this public health um, you know, belief, I guess, that sex education results in lower rates of sexually transmitted infections, it results in lower rates of pregnancy, that sort of students need to be informed about how their bodies work. Equals a good thing. Equals a good thing, right? (laughs) And then you have religious communities who say, well, we should be able to determine how we educate the young members of our communities, you know. Um, And I think we see in the history of Supreme Court decisions, and you actually see this interestingly around a lot of Supreme Court decisions around Amish communities, is that the Supreme Court goes both ways on this. Sometimes that they side with, you know, communities should have self-determination, they should have freedom of religious expression, and other times they say, no, the public health concern is so great that we're going to side with the public health concern. And again, it's not really about, like, is religion right or is science right? It's this, how do we make decisions as communities and as publics? Do you see, as in the future, I, I know you, you're a historian uh, by, by training uh, and by scholarship, but, but do you see 
this debate going on ad infinitum or between religion and and science, or do you see points of merger? I think that if I I think the way that I want to answer that question is that um, I don't know, and I'm not sure that I am so invested in the answer to that question. Actually, um, I think what I'm more invested in is something like for most of the history of let's say Western societies, the people who got to ask the big questions like, you know. How do we have good knowledge? Does God exist? How does the universe work? These people tended to be men. They tended to be white. They tended to be rich. They tended to um, uh, at least have the social appearance of being straight. And I think what I'm invested in is to say, what are the? how do those questions change when you have someone like me who is a woman, who is mixed race, who you know doesn't come from necessarily an elite economic background? How do those questions change? And if we change those questions, do we then come up with different? Um, do we have a, a better politics? Do we have a politics that is kinder, that gives more room for more people? Do we have a politics that recognizes the humanity of more people? So. That might be a very unsatisfying answer no, to your no, question. No, no, no. Um, but that's, that's the way that I think about it. Yeah. You hear the, the the trite term separation of church and state, yeah. and, and that's always used as a weapon against anybody who's advancing a religious cause. Mm-hmm. Um, is that – do you get tired of that argument? Is that – that, that doesn't seem to touch – what you're doing? Yeah, I don't. I don't get tired in the public policy. Area. Yeah, no, I don't get tired of it so much as I find it sort of fascinating. Um, one of the things I'll ask my students, for instance, when I'm I'm teaching on American religions, is like, where, like, do they think there's a science a separation of church and religion, or sorry, separation of church and state police? Because they will they will often say that like we have separation of church and state, and I'll ask, well, which law do you mean, and who? Who's deciding and who's regulating that and enforcing that? And they're often shocked to find that that phrase doesn't appear in the Constitution, for instance. Right. It's like um, the public's right to know doesn't appear there either yeah. or the right to privacy isn't, right. isn't explicitly stated either. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I point out to my students, which is, you know, very well known, obviously, to um, American historians is that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment only applied to Congress, um, you know, up until the early 20th century. So individual states could establish religion all the live long day, and they did. They paid for Protestant schools or Catholic schools. I mean, Massachusetts had an official state religion until, I think, the 1830s. So It wasn't until 1925 that the Supreme Court said the First Amendment applied to the states. Yeah. So on the one hand, this is a sort of it's very interesting to me that Americans have this, on the one hand, very strong confidence that we have a separation of church and state. And then on the other hand, a lot of Americans will also believe that religion should have a significant part of political life, and they'll not bat an eye when there are really significant religious influences in political life. So, I mean, a really basic kind of silly example is, is it separation of church and state when the president gets sworn in on a Bible? And most people, you know, don't bat an eye at that. And even the Supreme Court 
um, you know, there's a, um, I'm forgetting the name of the court case, but the um, Supreme Court decided it was fine, for instance, for the Ten Commandments to be displayed outside of a courtroom. And one of the things that the Supreme Court noted in that decision was that there was a, there's a display of the Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court itself, right? So, um, and the president ends every speech with "God bless America." Right. And, you know, I mean, traditionally. I mean, one of the things maybe that's just a lesson for people in the United States is that we live in an incredibly Christian country. I mean, if you were, I think, coming from Mars and having to characterize the United States, you would describe it as very much a religious country. You know, in the way that we might describe other countries as being very Muslim, for instance, or very Jewish, even if ostensibly they understand themselves to be secular countries. So I don't I don't know that I get tired of it. I just I, I sort of wonder like where do we where do we get that kind of robust confidence that we have separation of church and state? True. Let's uh, as we're wrapping up talk about Cosmologics. It's a journal that you edit. Uh, it's uh, from Harvard. Uh, Tell us about it. Yeah, so Cosmologics is a, a kind of academic public magazine that publishes four times a year, and it's a project of, as you say, the Harvard Divinity School. And um, I edit the magazine and actually started it, um, I guess, more than five years ago now. And it, it's meant to be a space for, on the one hand, scholars to um, write pieces that do this approach to science and religion that I've been talking about. So a lot of times we say at um, the program that the magazine is a part of, which is called the Science, Religion, and Culture Program, a lot of times we say beyond conflict and harmony, an approach to science religion that looks at issues of identity and inequality. So the magazine publishes pieces um, by senior scholars, but, but also by postdoctoral fellows and um, graduate students that sort of look at that look at these themes. Um, it also um, publishes a special issue every year where we sort of take up one topic where we really want to focus on what does our approach to science and religion do for this topic. So for instance, last year, our special issue focused on race. The year before that, it focused on immigration. We've done special issues on vegetarianism or capitalism. We actually had a, a special issue on new approaches to creationism. And those issues sort of give us a chance to to really kind of demonstrate and, and give more detail to, if you take this approach to science and religion, this I might call a critical approach to science and religion, what kinds of things do you talk about? What things do you study? How is it different? Um, so, and um, I have a really you know talented team of editors who who works with me, and um, I you know I think it's something maybe your listeners might might enjoy. Reading some pieces in. If you'd like to take a look at it, and it's really accessible online, it's Cosmologics, C O S M O L O G I C S, Cosmologics, plural, magazine, all one word, cosmologicsmagazine.com. Yeah. Dr. Perez Sheldon, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Today we've been talking with Dr. Myrna Perez Sheldon. She's an assistant professor of gender and American religion at Ohio University. We talked about the intersection between science, religion, and public policy. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play or at NPR One. 
Spectrum also is available at the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through any of your podcast outlets.